0: New
1: part? one you
2: and I was right after the cut-off time. Okay, we're ready to go? Mm-hmm. Good, afternoon. We're good. good afternoon, we're going to begin. D'abord, je voudrais faire un annonce.
3: First, I want to do an announcement. There was a revolution. There was a revolution and I'm new to the new captain in this committee. The anarchists have arrived.
2: Friends to the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics, <coughs> uh, this is meeting 139 and pursuant to standing order 108.3H7 in the study of privacy and digital service, government services. Today we have two groups of witnesses, the Herjavec group with Matthew Anthony, the Vice President, Incident Response and Threat Analysis. Ira Goldstein, Senior Vice President of Corporate Development. We have Secure Key Technologies Incorporated. Andrew Boyson, Chief Information Officer. Rennie McIver, Chief Security Officer. So each group will have 10 minutes to present. Um, we are pretty reasonable here but when you get close to the 10 minutes I will start to jump up and down very loudly. Not to distract you, but just to let you know. Uh, And then we will begin our first round of questions. We'll go seven minutes, and then we'll go to a five-minute round. So if we could begin, uh, is the Herjavec Group ready
3: to to begin? We are ready. Good afternoon. Thank you to the chair, the vice chairs, and the members of the committee for the opportunity to speak today. My name is Ira Goldstein. I'm the Senior Vice President of Corporate Development at the Herjavec Group. I've spent the last decade working in information security to help companies and governments secure their most critical digital assets. I'm joined by Matt Anthony, our Vice President of Security Remediation Services at Herjavec Group, whose remarks will follow mine. Herjavec Group was founded in 2003 by Robert Herjavec, who emigrated to Canada with his parents from Eastern Europe. A dynamic entrepreneur, Robert has built Herjavec Group to be one of the largest privately held cybersecurity firms in the world. Our experience includes working with private and public sector organizations in complex multi-technology environments to ensure their data, security and privacy. We are honoured to address the committee today on behalf of Robert, Herjavec Group and our fellow Canadians. Our statement will address two subject areas related to the committee's study. First, I will outline why digital identity is a key building block in the transformation of government services. I will then outline steps to manage, govern and secure our digital identities. My recommendation is for the government to tread lightly on the broader transformation path to ensure privacy and security are top priorities. In parallel, the government should move quickly on a pilot project to expand existing success in Canada's digital presence. Digital government services must be built on a foundation of identity good governance. If our identities are to be digitized and managed by government, citizens expect a system that ensures security and privacy. Our identity attributes are assumed to be protected by the issuer, our federal government. In any system, physical or digital, fraud is a risk that must be mitigated through effective controls and ongoing assessment. These concepts are not far from realization. When a baby is born or a new immigrant arrives, individuals may request their identity documentation online. Ultimately, physical artifacts are issued as proof of identity. But the fact that we have an online portal today to provision identification means that we have the foundation to leverage that data for use in digital government services. Several government services are already online. One of the most critical functions of government, tax collection, is digitized through Canada Revenue Agency's e-file system. Presumably the push to e-file was supported by efficiency outcomes and stands as as a successful use case of digital transformation. Any further steps to digitize citizen identity must consider the perception of an impact on individual privacy. Individuals may perceive digital identity as a threat to privacy, despite the expected benefits. One recent example is the speed at which public perception soured over Statistics Canada's plan to collect personal financial information. Despite involvement of the Privacy Commissioner and plans to anonymize the data, perception quickly turned negative towards this prospect. The contrast between CRA's e-file success and StatsCan's attempt to gather financial information is a guiding light for the committee. Digitizing government services will be welcomed by the public if managed and messaged thoughtfully. The upside to this effort is more access for historically marginalized groups and geographies so the opportunity cannot be ignored. Historically identity proofing has required a trusted centralized authority to govern provisioning and usage. If I want to prove who I am, I need to show government-issued identification. I foresee this authoritative proof as a permanent feature of modern democracy, so despite the advances in decentralized identity, the government has an important role to play in identity management. In sum, I strongly recommend the committee seizes the opportunity to further digitize components of citizen identity to enable the efficient and secure delivery of government services while taking caution in the line we must draw between centralizing data and ensuring that individual privacy is maintained. Thanks, Ira. Um,
0: my name is Matt Anthony. I'm the Vice President of Security Remediation Services. I've been working in information security for over 20 years. i um, honored to be here to address the committee today. I'll keep my remarks focused on two main areas. Firstly, I'd like to address the issue of e-government, e- specifically the pace and volume of change. There have been great successes. Ira's already mentioned tax filing, and, and uh, you can do anything from tax filing to pet registrations at all levels of government, and I think we're seeing real advantages from some of those. But I also see fear of missing out and reputation-enhancing drivers for a lot of the initiatives that, we, uh, that are influence the adoption and adaptation to electronic government services. Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, is famous for saying, move fast and break things. And while that was taken on as a mantra for global, uh, uh, global developers in all areas of uh, business and se- private sectors, I don't think that the government of Canada could or, or should or could have that same kind of capability to move fast and break things. Hirschbeck Group's cyber incident response teams, we've seen the direct impact of moving fast and breaking things. We, we're, we come back in and sweep some of that up. Breaches are large, costly, and very, very damaging. Adding to that, there is a global skill shortage in the core capabilities needed to securely govern, develop, test, deploy, and maintain complex software systems. Current published figures show that there will be about 3.5 million cybersecurity job openings in, by 2021. That's worldwide, obviously. The global digital transformation is in direct tension with that. There are more projects, more services, and more data being created, stored, managed, and mined. Canada and Canadian governments will feel this tension very, very directly. The committee's heard a great deal about three case studies, and Ira mentioned uh, it already, and I've heard uh, some talk in the corridors about, uh, about a couple of them. Uh, Sidewalk Toronto, uh, Estonia, and Australia. I just wanted to t- address the Estonia example briefly, because it's, it's been held up as a, uh, a high-water mark for digital transformation. But Estonia's had a few major advantages in doing this that, that Canada doesn't emplo- enjoy. They had a sm- very small population, a very small geography a relatively green field in the post-Soviet era for technology, and a relatively homogenous population accustomed to central control. When I talk about those things, I think you can reflect on Canada not having many of those advantages in, in trying to do these kinds of services. And the model would look very different for Canada. So I would, while that transformation appears successful, we also don't know a whole lot about the security and privacy concerns, the, the political and cultural aspects of, of what would be expected including how much we might learn about security and privacy aspects might not be evident for years or or even longer than that. So I caution against using Estonia as a North Star for our transformations in Canada. You can't stand still obviously we have to move forward but my hope is that we go slowly enough to be assured that the changes that we do for, are fully governed and secured to the appropriate level. Go carefully according to s- strong principles wait for the necessary technology such as AI and automation controls to support us better, and don't allow fear of missing out and international comparisons to cause us to hurry ahead of our abilities and capabilities. Secondly, I'd like to briefly address information sharing. I want to commend the data strategy roadmap, uh, in that there are six most important things uh, laid out in that document, and I can't do much more than say that they are precise and correct. Um, I would like to amplify them. The concepts are simple. Develop a strategy provide clarity on data stewardship, develop standards and guidelines for governance, imp- improve recruitment to gather the needed skills, and develop technology systems that support the strategy. Those are all easy to say, but enormously difficult to do, uh, individually and, and severally. In 1984, Stuart Brand presciently wrote that information wants to be free. At the time, he was talking about how the consistent technologized technologi- Never mind. Uh, The technology costs were going lower and lower and lower. um, But now it's become synonymous with the difficult problem of keeping access control. When information is beyond the source's control, it will tend to get distributed widely. It follows, then, that secondary and tertiary uses of the government's data need to be as acutely controlled and astutely controlled as primary use is. The government faces a monumental task in understanding and managing legacy data and systems. Reconciling inconsistent or undocumented consents for use, information silos, usage rules, data structures, identity platforms, and administrative processes will each also be monumental in scale. I believe taking a greenfield approach may be advantageous. Establishing rules clearly for new data collection and allowing legacy data to be integrated in the future as capabilities such as AI and other data collection and tagging can be paired with lower cost for transformation through automation. Don't rush to data lake models. An unex- Unexpected de-anonymization and information correlations will emerge, I've seen them, some of which may be contrary to public policy, law, or intent. There are a lot of assertions that opportunities will emerge and efficiencies will be achieved by aggressively mining, aggregating, and sharing data. I urge the committee to show evidence for that. Um, it's easy to get caught up in the uh, in the rush to, uh, uh, to take that approach. You cannot stand still. Um... But I advise the committee. I urge you to slow an industry to slow down, be more careful, and do not allow ambition to overshadow capability. Go slowly enough to fully understand, measure, and manage information risks. Remember, criminals like data, and breaches are messy, complicated, and very expensive. Thank you, Thank you very much.
2: Security Technologies, please.
4: Good afternoon. I am Renee McIver. Uh, Chief Security and Privacy Officer at SecureKey. I'd like to begin by thanking the committee for giving us the opportunity to participate in your study on privacy and digital government services. My background is in cryptomathematics, biometrics, standards, and identity. And I've, been with, uh, I've spent time at the communication security establishment, um, and I've been now with SecureKey for the past decade. I'm joined here today by my colleague Andre Boysen, who's our Chief Identity Officer and Co-Founder of SecureKey. Andre's been in the fintech industry for 30 years and is a globally recognized leader in digital identity and privacy. He also serves on the board of the Digital Identity and Authentication Council of Canada. SecureKey is a proudly Canadian company. Uh, SecureKey has been the provider of record for the Government of Canada's uh, Partner Login Service since 2012, also known as SecureKey Concierge. We are a world leader in providing technology solutions that enable citizens to efficiently access high-value digital services while also protecting the security and privacy of their personal information. We do this by building highly secure networks that span and merge the strengths of the public and private sectors. As we know, the digital age has ushered in a host of new services, business models, and opportunities to participate in the world. Not long ago, it would be unimaginable to order a shared ride from a device in your pocket or to confidentially access government services from your home. Today we take these things for granted and often get irritated when we come across something that can't be done online. It's not just about citizen expectations. Companies, governments, and other organizations have strong incentives to move services and transactions online so as to enhance clients' experiences, realize cost savings, and increase business surety. An organization's ability to do this hinges on a single question. Can I trust the person or digital identity at the other end of the transaction? This digital identity challenge is equally problematic on both sides. To recognize clients and provide trusted access to services online, organizations typically deploy a mix of analog and digital measures to confirm identity and mitigate risk. As we've seen, however, these solutions tend to be complex and inadequate. As a result, confidence in them has suffered. On the other side, citizens are asked to navigate a myriad of identification methods to satisfy the organizations they seek services from without knowing where the information's going and in the face of a steady stream of news about data breaches and online impersonators. These concerns are well-founded. Fraudsters are collecting information to know as much and sometimes more than the citizens they are impersonating. Standard physical cards are easily counterfeited, and it's often impossible to check their validity with the issuing sources. Even biometric methods, which have often been touted as the solution to digital fraud, are targeted by hackers, increasing the risk that biometric data may also be compromised. These factors are driving, up, uh, driving complexity up, trust in the system down, and adversely affecting privacy, exactly the opposite of what needs to happen. Our siloed system is too hard for consumers to use and too expensive to be sustained. The challenge we face is not simply a matter of finding the best technology, the right skills, or enough money to fix it. Rather, everyone with a stake in the system needs to focus on solving the digital identity problem that underpins all digital services. We need to bring data and identity information back under the control of the citizen. To solve this challenge, we must find ways to combine the prime factors of identity. So these factors are unique things we know, like shared secrets, the unique things we have, Uh, like verifiable chip cards or mobile devices and the unique things we are, like our fingerprints or or our face scans. So by combining these factors, we can resolve identity and give organizations confidence that their clients are who they say they are. Experience to date proves that single-factor methods are not up to the task. This means that trusted networks, ecosystem of trusted participants, uh, are needed. All participants must be involved in the solution, including and perhaps especially the citizens, whose control over their own data and privacy will underpin its security. Only by combining the best aspects of each system can we solve the digital identity problem and rebuild the trust that is equally required by both organizations and citizens. For example, governments are the initial issuers of identity uh, individual identities, including birth registries, immigration documents, Permits, licenses. Governments also can link their records to a living person by isu- issuing a driver's license or passport. But governments are not as adept as the commercial sector at knowing if that person is actually at the, end, at the other end of a, a given digital transaction. Banks, however, successfully conduct billions of authentications a year. Compared to other organizations, citizens only rarely interact with governments during their lives. They may renew a license or passport every five years, pay taxes online once a year, but will log into their bank account several times a week. This frequency generates a higher level of trust and immediacy to that interaction. Then think about mobile devices, which are both identifiable within a cellular network and are tied to subscriber accounts through the user's SIM card. All parts have something valuable to offer within a successful network. Imagine a scenario where a citizen can choose to share information securely within a network made up of organizations that they already trust. This gives the ability to use a layered approach to proving identity. The citizen would access the network using their trusted online banking credentials, using a mobile device that the telecommunications operator can validate, all to share reliable information from multiple sources, including information from digitally enabled government-issued documents. Using this layered approach, we get a significantly higher level of confidence in the identity of the person conducting the transaction. The trick is how to do this without becoming a surveillance network or creating a new honeypot of data. We need to establish the basis for privacy and trust while minimizing the level of data sharing going on between the parties. Triple blind privacy solves this challenge. The receiving organization does not need to know the actual issuer of the information, only that it comes from a trusted source. The issuer does not need to know who uh, who the receiving organization is. And the network operators are not exposed to the unprotected personal information. Triple blind. What this means is that none of the transaction participants actually get a complete picture of the user transaction. This proven formula has been recognized by the privacy community worldwide including by the Office of Ontario's Information and Privacy Commissioner. This is not the distant future. All pieces are already in place to enable a system that has authoritative information, provides receivers of information with confidence in the transaction, and for the citizen to fully trust the system as they control their own data in a privacy-enhanced way. This type of arrangement is the cutting edge and is happening now. With the information and resources we have, Canada has the opportunity to solve the digital identity challenge and become the model for the world. These include cooperative jurisdictions, technologically advanced telecommunications, and world leadership in developing new approaches, such as privacy and security by design, uh, developed by Dr. Anne Kavukian, as well as the Pan-Canadian Trust Framework that's championed by the Digital Identity and Authentication Council of Canada. We have the opportunity to build services that can provide identity validation claims from multiple parties in a single transaction while ensuring complete privacy and control for the citizen. Key factors for any solution to be successful will be citizen acceptance, trust, and the potential to reach a large user base quickly. The responsibility to protect privacy and to provide a sense of security to citizens are fundamental factors in the success of any solution. It is critical that Canada's approach connects together the trusted parts of the digital economy such as finance, telecommunications, government and commerce. Only this will provide citizens with confidence they demand, to use the providers that they already trust, and to have access to the information that they want to securely share. The cyber risk around digital identity is high. Any solution that does not involve both private and public sectors will be of limited limited success. It will perpetrate the siloed approach that is currently under strain and will not have the security or public trust to enable the digital economy of tomorrow. Thank you.
2: We'll begin the questioning with Madame
5: Fortier. Well, I think you should uh, try to pick up the earpieces. I'm going to be asking my questions in French. So thank you very much uh, for your presence this afternoon. I can see that you have uh, infinitely better knowledge of the area than I do, and I hope that we can share your expertise, which will allow us to learn and to go further in what we're trying to accomplish. So thank you for your testimony. Mr. Anthony, you mentioned that we should have a go-slow approach. I was quite interested in hearing that. Uh, Am I coming through? No? Are others hearing me? Uh, Perhaps the channel? Perhaps the channel?
4: Alors, vous m'entendez maintenant? Oui. Merci.
5: OK, now is it coming through? As I was saying, your expertise is very significant to us and important to us as a committee. And I'd like to address uh, the question, you mentioned a go slow approach, we shouldn't rush things. Um, Go go slowly, but go surely. That's how what I understood you to say. Uh, Everything, of course, is uh, under pressure to move ahead quickly in society today in order to meet growing needs, to deal with changes, and to provide all these digital services to Canada, to Canadians. How can we establish that balance of, of uh, make make haste but slowly? Um, if we go slowly, how would you how would you go about that? How can we balance that?
0: Without a very specific answer, I'm afraid, which is how you balance a very complex, multivariant challenge with a simple, clear strategy. Um, when when Max Planck. Uh, sorry, when Rene Heller from the Max Planck Institute described an innovation trap where it doesn't, he used the example of it doesn't matter when you might launch a spaceship for interstellar travel, it would be better to wait because you'll over, always overtake yourself because of technology change. Okay. So my my answer to that, and, and we can see that also with regard to, uh, you know, maybe you've bought a personal computer and wondered should I buy it this month or next month, that's also the same kind of an innovation trap. And so we're faced with that in, in public policy as well, which is making considered decisions on a case by case basis about what data we're comfortable with and can comfortably uh, control the aspects of information security and privacy before we make the decision to move forward for it. So um, you have to continually do the research, which is the go slow part, to make the assessment about whether we're ready to go through to production, which is the move fast part. So go slowly until you're ready and then move quickly when you are.
5: <laughs> Merci. Uh- thank you for that another question uh, perhaps uh, you can all share in answering it we know that there's been quite a bit of uh, there's been quite an evolution in this uh, security space uh, cyber security how far do we have to go to ensure cybersecurity? are there any approaches that you think are Perhaps uh, more reliable, or per- perhaps offer more security than others. Ms. McIver, would you like to uh, give it a, or Mr. Boyson? Well, thank you first of all for your invitation.
1: The tricks here is that cybersecurity and privacy is a very complex topic, and the challenge with the model is today is that everybody in Canada has to understand how the system works in order for the security system to be effective. And that to me is fundamentally bad design. What I'd like to do is Estonia, I want to pick up on Matt's comments about Estonia. Estonia did an amazing thing for an Estonia. But when it comes to digital ID, I would say there's two key messages that I want to deliver today. Message number one is that every government in the world wants the digital identity information to be sovereign. They don't want to be beholden to some foreign corporation who's beyond the reach of the jurisdiction from a judicial point of view. That's one challenge. However, the bigger challenge is is that identity is very cultural. What works in country one won't necessarily work in country two. And this is particularly acute in the example of Estonia. When it comes to national ID cards, I would say to you that there's only two types of countries in the world, the countries that have national ID cards and the countries that hate national ID cards. (laughs) And I would say Canada, US, UK, Australia, New Zealand, and many parts of Europe are against this idea of a national ID card for several reasons. Part of it is because of World War II. We saw all of the harms that came from governments having these large databases. The government had no intent of harm when it created these systems, but when somebody came in after, the Germans, it created all sorts of unanticipated harm. So we saw the danger of having all of the data in one place. And so I would say that that is, on balance, a better scheme, but I'm not here to criticize what Estonia did. I think their model is very good, but they they come from a different cultural place, which I think Matt made the point of very, very well. So if we're going to do this right, then rather than looking at a country of a million, why do we look at the biggest and most successful authentic- identity and authentication scheme in the world is the credit card scheme. We have six billion cards in circulation for payments around the world. And we don't see the news breach every week, credit card compromised here, Starbucks over there, user lost a credit card over there. We don't see that. Why is that? The reason is the global payment system is managed very differently than the online identity system that we have today. As a consumer, I don't have to understand how the payment scheme works. I just have to know how to tap my card, and if I can do that, I'm good. So when it comes to the cards, we've done two very clever things. One is we made it super simple for the user. When I do this, I know I'm committing myself, so it's hard for a crook to trick me out of that. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that I don't have to understand it. So I know when I leave, the barista can't change my $10 to $1,000 after I leave. So that's the first thing that makes the global payment system safe. The second thing that keeps the global payment system safe is the fact that there's a trusted network operator in the middle. The crook can't pop up in the middle, say, I'm a crook, I take Visa. Mm -hmm. You have to apply to get in the network, and you have to behave stay in the network. And that's not the same as the Internet. On the Internet, it's very different. None of the banks in Canada send SMS messages to their customers for security. And the reason is they don't believe it's secure enough. The problem is, is every other service does. Facebook does it. Apple does it. Netflix does it. Google does it. So my dad gets a message on his phone saying, suspicious activity on your account. Please click on this URL, www.bmo.com.crookurl.com. My dad doesn't know how our URL works. He clicks on this thing thinking it's going to go to BMO. And despite the fact that BMO has very good control, this is not about BMO, by the way. BMO has very good security controls in place. BMO's got a security breach on the hand because my dad didn't get what was going on. So hiding the the complexity from the user and having a trusted network operator is really, really important. Now, I want to bring it back to something Renee said a second ago. The third thing that keeps the global payment system safe is user behavior. When I lose my payment card, I will call the bank within minutes. And I call them up because I promised them I would, I don't care about them. I care about me. I'm terrified the crook who found my card is going to spend my money and I'm going to be responsible. So it's that user behavior, that self-interest, causes me to do the right thing and turn it off. That's what keeps the global payment system safe, which is very unlike the way we manage digital identity today. And so if we want to look to a model rather than look at Estonia, I think it's good what it, they did for them. We should look out and learn what we've done in Canada. You should look at your own experience here. Every other government in the world is looking at you and saying, how in the... How in heck did you get this partner login service with all the banks in Canada? We want that. How did you do that? Everyone else is looking here, and we're looking over there. Thank you. We we have an amazing, an amazing story to tell here, and we need to build upon it rather than try and reinvent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mr.
2: Kent, I'm going to have to take a one minute of her time off yours. Uh, is that okay?
6: That's No. You know, Collegiality uh, prevails at this committee, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I, no, I would share if you uh, no, 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 field no, an continue, assessment. Continue. Anyway, thank you all for for coming in, and just to pick up on on that point, uh, <laughs> Canada's uh, Banking Association has is obviously pursuing a digital ID program, um, but their CEO, in a speech in January, also suggested that the banks uh, could well be a central part in any uh, national digital government network extension. Uh, I, I'm just wondering how many levels of proprietary technology could eventually be involved and at, and at what cost? Or, or would you suggest that after RFPs, after pilot projects, uh, one vendor, one digital technology vendor would be selected and would run the entire show?
1: Uh, no. I, in fact, I'd argue that's a bad thing. And so back to my example of the global payment scheme, Uh, we see when we look around the world, we have five to ten global payment brands, Visa, Amex, MasterCard, Discover, and others. And the reason they all exist is because they all serve their constituencies slightly differently. Some are merchant-focused, some are more consumer-focused, some try to do it all. And so they all exist because they serve the right way. And so what that what's good about that model is all of us can make different choices about our favorite financial provider, and you're not stuck to that choice. If you start with bank one and you say, I hate bank one, I want to go to bank two, you can, and you can continue on as you were. And so having a single provider of this whole thing, I think, would be a dangerous thing. We want to have an open scheme so that we can have multiple providers. That's actually quite important, and that has to be based on standards, not propriety lock-in technology.
6: So which would argue, which would argue against the Estonian single-chip, common card uh, technology.
1: Um, Just to draw a a difference, um, what Estonia is trying to do, which is smart, is they want to make sure other countries did what Estonia did so they're not doing their own thing. Because otherwise, if the rest of the world goes a different direction, they're going to have to change, which is why they're out there evangelizing and doing a good job of it, I would say. But we have that same opportunity. And so the challenge for us is we do what Estonia did as an example, and then the U.S. decides to go a different direction, then we're going to have to change. So the opportunity for Canada here is to get our own house in order, get our own economy working, and then we can make this an export standard to create a global standard for the world. Because everyone else is looking here saying, this is really cool, we want that. So that's our opportunity.
6: Uh, was it Mr. Goldstein? Yes. You suggested uh, suggested starting with a pilot project, a, a rather s- a basic scale pilot project. What What size are you talking about in one single government department?
3: I think look at the services that are already online and look at the capability that's already in the federal government. The, the Canadian Center for Cybersecurity was a huge step forward in terms of bringing that capability together, and there is immense capability there, even if Canadians are just starting to learn about it publicly now because of that announcement, and look at the government services that are all already somewhat digitized and look at how we can leverage those together to get better outcomes for citizens. I think what we're talking about is, you know, I, I agree with a lot of what everyone has said, but I think interacting with services outside of government, maybe step three or four, actually enabling the digitization of current government services that aren't digital is step one. Um, one of the other reasons people are so confident in the banking system is depository insurance. There's a backing that says if money is lost with a, with a financial institution, it's probably not going to come out of my pocket as long as I you know, follow the rules of the game. Yes. So I think, you know, I, I reiterate from my comments that I think government has an, has an important role to play in the kind of arbiter of that identity, um, and let's look at what's already digitized with the government. CRA is an example. Let's, let's add to that, and let's go through the federal government services, see how we can bring those together and leverage that existing digitization.
6: So would you suggest uh, where in Estonia their website tells us that 98% of their population have been issued a digital ID card uh, but given human nature in Canada uh, the reluctance the skepticism the cynicism the 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 fear of of uh, or the opposition to digital ID uh, would you suggest making it optional in any pilot project I think
3: when I say pilot, I mean more so the capability should be piloted, but it should be available to all Canadians. So I don't think it should be necessarily a pilot group or one province or one group does it. The capability should be piloted to a specific use case. So, uh, you know, with with the CRA example, you just continue to expand that. I'm not worried about the government having information about me as a citizen that they already have. Right. If we look back to the StatsCan example, the reason there was public outrage was people thought, "Hmm, the government doesn't have this information today. Now they want it. This is outrageous." Had and we the said, lack of consent. The lack of consent. But if it's anonymized, you know where you know where is that consent, John? If we had said, "We're we're you know embracing open data. We want certain aggregated anonymized information to make the provision of services cheaper and better and focused more so." You know, I think a lot of people would have been really excited about it because the Canadians are progressive with that mindset of moving to digital. And so it's almost more so in how you do it than in what you do. Uh, to everyone's, and you know, to Matt's point about treading lightly, you need to go slowly with it in that way, plan your communications carefully. But uh, I think we would all firmly believe that Canadians are ready for this. It's just a question of execution.
6: Okay, oh, okay. chicken and egg question. Uh, the EU has brought in the general data... Uh, regulation protection, Mm -hmm. GDPR, Uh, and there have been suggestions that Canada is far behind Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the protection of privacy that is now enabled, perhaps over-enabled, over-protected in some aspects in in Europe. But before digital government is implemented in Canada, would you suggest um, the writing of regulations, many Mm -hmm. of them similar to the privacy protections and guarantees of the GDPR?
3: That's a big question, right? And I think uh Canadian privacy legislation is not something that we should just say is is insufficient, right? There's some good there are there are some good privacy frameworks here. It's a question of what are those de- definitions? You know, what's real risk of significant harm? What does that mean to a company, like companies that we help, who are trying to determine what they should tell the government about when there's a security or privacy breach? We need to make it more practical for companies and individuals to abide by these frameworks. Um, I'm not saying we should go all the way to GDPR. I'm sure we all have varying opinions on GDPR. Yeah. Matt's shaking, out. Um, But, you know, the reason, you know why the reason people are abiding by GDPR? Because there's financial fines behind it. And that's why there's a lot well, of consultants absolutely. making a lot of money on it and all of that. So I, I'm, we shouldn't go all the way in that direction, but there's we need to make it easier for Canadian business to consume that type of regulation in Canada, keep that strong privacy framework, but make it easier for businesses to consume.
0: If, if I could just elaborate for just a second on Iris comment um, it's and, and to your question should we go all the way do a gdpr type answer the the question is yes I think the global the global push towards having governments protect citizens in balance to citizens maybe becoming less interested in privacy on a, on an individual point level uh, it raises the uh, the interest of government to protect citizenship uh, collectively but when I what Iris said is really important and I I, I try to address it tangentially as well, which is the making the expectations really clear about how to handle and manage data so that people understand what they are suspected, expected to do and how they're expected to do it before you start pushing stuff to the online realm is really very useful. And I can't tell you whether or not we need to make a change to our regulations, policies, or practices, but at the very least making those transparent and easier to Thank you to very understand. much.
2: Now to Charlie Angus for seven minutes, and just to be fair, I will put the gavel beside the clerk, and if I go over, he's going to hit me. (laughs) Um, I I find this fascinating, and uh, uh, Mr. Anthony saying to tread lightly I find very surprising. Um, I, I used to be a digital believer, and in the digital believing world, Things are going to be better. We're going to move faster. Um, and the longer I'm in this job, the more wary I get. So I, I think Tread Lightly is a very interesting um, example. And I just want to talk a bit about my sense of how Canadians see privacy and digital innovation. Uh, I was talking with tech people in the U.S. and they they were marveling. They were saying, you guys really take this stuff seriously. We had a serious digital copyright battle that involved citizens and letters, you know, the, the net throttling issue was a big issue. I mean, it was Canada that did the first investigation into Facebook. But at the same time, as Mr. Boyson's pointed out, people hate identity cards here. I think of my voters and they would like they would be up in arms over this. So, we look at Statistics Canada. As a good example of how not to do this, Statistics Canada has a worldwide reputation, a worldwide trust for Canadians, but they thought they were doing something in the public interest, but it struck Canadians the wrong way. What would you advise in terms of, for government that may think that gathering more information is in the best interest, and you said ab- about the danger of opportunities that they say will emerge and more efficiencies will be achieved by m- mining, aggregating and sharing data, but require, you're saying that we need to require evidence to show that. What do you? Th- what
0: are the parameters we need to be looking at on this? So th- there's a lot bundled into that question yeah. and I'll, I'll try to spread <laughs> it out. Um, firstly, I'll, I'll say that when When you collect data it's it's an addictive process it's easy to do. You get collect large amounts of data. you can't lose what you don't have and when I say go slowly," I want to reiterate that I see people on their worst days very often dealing with breach management that I see the <coughs> outcome and aspects of the failure to do the things that i'm advising to do so um the how how to how to balance out the issues of what data to collect. Why you're collecting it, making sure that there's consent for use for it um, are the real keys to, to answering your question, I think. And when we have historical data, consent to use might be very difficult to, to derive. Um, I can't tell you what consent I gave to data I gave to the federal government five years ago. I don't remember. Um, I can't tell you, I don't remember signing anything away. It was probably in the fine print. You can make a studied case that I did somehow give you consent to do that, but if I didn't have clarity about that, if it weren't communicated correctly to me, then I'm going to be very unhappy with you when you use the data exactly the way you said you might. Um, So I think that communication and clear consent is probably at at the center, maybe, of the Statistics Canada case particularly, but um, I would say don't collect data you don't need and be very clear about how you're going to use it and get clear consent about how you're going to use it if it's personal information. Well, thank
2: you. Mr. Boyson. I was interested in what you are talking about, like the example of the banks. If I don't like the bank, and actually I don't like the banks, I go to my credit union, the case populaire. Um, Part of the service. And, are, <laughs> and I have good service. And if I have a problem, they call me right away, and we, we, we deal with that. Uh, we're talking, you know, our study, our committee has spent a lot of time looking at how we access online, and we don't have choice this is what we found with Facebook, this is what we're finding with Google and we've begun to talk about the issues of antitrust uh, which is not generally the realm of our committee but for the rights of citizens and protecting data. I mean you have a problem with Facebook what are you going to do? You can't do anything. You can't go to WhatsApp because it's controlled by them. You know they they control all the other the avenues. So in terms of uh, overall public policy, do you feel that these issues of having not enough choice in how we engage online, how we, our private information is collected and used by the data-opolis uh, has a negative effect overall on wh- where we're moving.
1: Um, yes, uh, the short answer is yes, it's a problem. And so I think we have to think about this in a very different way. The challenge we have today with the architecture of the internet is every web service delivery organization is on their own when it comes to registering customers online. And we can see what that's produced. For all of us here in the room, some of us have 10 passwords, some of us have 25, some of us have 100. Some of us have 100, but it's really just one because it's all the same password. <laughs> right? And so what we see in this model is that you know, when everybody's by themselves, the only way we can get to confidence that it's really used, we have to do a very very, very thorough enrollment process. And this is particularly cute in government because your duty of care is so high. The consequence is the the customer can't get through this process oftentimes. And when they do, the problem is you've got all the data. And so when you get breached, you have to remediate all the data. Mm -hmm. And so we only have this problem online. In person, it's not as much of a problem. In person, we already collaborate and cooperate when it comes to identity. When I want to get a bank account, I bring in a government Issued ID and something from somewhere else and I can get a bank account. When I want to prove I've lived in Ontario for six months, I bring my bank name to show up and living at that address for that long. And so we already cooperate in real world in doing these identity services. It's only online where we have this challenge. And so one of the things I would put to you is that one of the things you should be thinking about is not nearly fo- solving this from a government point of view, but thinking from an economy point of view. And so the challenge and one of the reasons the banks are here and why they want to be in the scheme is this is not, from a banking point of view, not that interesting from a revenue point of view. What they want to be able to do is open bank accounts online, and they want to take the risk uh, problem down. The challenge they have is they can't verify the driver's license is real. What the crooks do is they take a real driver's license like mine, scratch my photo, stick their photo in it, and go get a line of credit. And they're defenseless against that type of attack. So what the banks want the government to do is get its house in order and make all your government-issued documents ready to participate in a digital economy. Back in 2008, Minister Flaherty at the time put together a task force here in Canada to talk about how we're going to make digital payments work. And so that task force ran for about two years. I participated in this. And the report that got produced by Pat Meredith, she did a very good job running the task force, was you can't have a digital economy. You can't do digital payments without digital identity. And so… Digital like Demi is the point is it has to work across the economy. It's not about solving health It's not about solving CRA's problem. It's about solving it for the consumer across the economy. Because when you look at your own life, the counters you have to show up with, your, your driver's license to get the thing that you want, takes a long time.
2: I have to stop you yeah. there so that I can end five seconds short of my time, just to put that on the record. <laughs> <What a cheer.
6: laughs>
7: Mr. Sani. Thank you very much uh, for your presentation. And I want to get some clarity. Because you've mentioned that, uh, you know, there's an issue whenever we have a national identity card. But I would say to you that we already have sub-national identity cards. We have a driver's license, we have a passport, we have a social insurance number. Mm-hmm. In Ontario, I have an OHIP card. So we might not have one number that's ubiquitous across the whole system, but we have cards underneath. Yes. The Estonian model, I agree with you. I think that the reason we used that or the reason we started with that, because that's one of the countries that is more advanced than maybe some others. Yep. But as you said, and I agree with you uh, wholeheartedly, or I think Mr. Anthony said, that the population of Estonia is 1.3 million. They had a lot of green fields. They had no legacy systems from the previous uh, um, uh, regime that they had under Russia. Um, you know, they have 4 million, uh, 4 million uh, square hectares of, of land, which half of it is forest. So they don't have any problems compared to what we have. However, eventually, we will have to move to some sort of digital identifier. And the reason I ask you this question, Mr. Boyson, is because I know your company, and I'm looking at a March 2017 press release. And you, during that press release, you wrote that IBM and SecureKey are working together to enable a new digital identity and attribute-sharing network based on IBM blockchain. Now, I really don't know what that means. So I was hoping maybe... <laughs> it, but it sounded good. And I'm sure, I'm sure, um, and and the reason I mention this is because blockchain would be one of those uh, process where we could see if there's any deviation. And you mentioned credit cards, and I'm a retailer, pharmacist, so I know how difficult it was even to get credit card machines in my store, all the knowledge, all all the paperwork and everything that had to be sent to them. But blockchain, could could that technology, and, and, and maybe you can highlight now that it's been a year, that you've been working with IBM. How has that come forward? And could not government adapt that?
1: So the short answer is yes. And the the, the scheme that we're proposing actually sees the government, both at the federal and provincial level, being a key participant in the scheme. You are required to make it more successful. It could run without you, but it would be way more successful if you participate. But your point is right, is that we already have these documents that we use. We use the documents we have to get the things we want. That's how the current model works. We use the stuff we have to get the new service that we don't yet have and we want. So that's the way the real world works. It's only online where we have this problem because the documents aren't digitized. So one of the asks is actually to digitize the government documents so it can participate in the scheme with the banks and the telcos and healthcare and insurance and the rest of them. But to get to your question about blockchain, there's a couple of things I here. The first thing I would say is the best way to be successful with blockchain is don't talk about blockchain. Because <laughs> uh, the problem is it's very laden. There's a lot of different ideas about what it is and what it isn't. Uh, the second thing I would say about blockchain is one of the things that I would bring on is the privacy component. One of the properties and the, the the benefits of blockchain is it's immutable. It will never change. The challenge is, is when you put that together with GDPR with my right to be forgotten, if I sign up for your service and I say, I want you to forget me, the only way to honor my agreement is to blow up your blockchain. So Putting up personal information on a blockchain is a really bad idea. This is like standard industry wisdom now. But what it is good for is integrity proofs. So I want to go back to the credit card example I gave you a few minutes ago. The challenge is, Raj, if I know enough about you today, I can be you on the internet. And the organization that I'm trying to fool is defenseless because I have all your data. I got it from the dark web. So we don't have this problem in the credit card scheme. There's two types of payments in the credit card scheme. When I go to the store and I pay in person, the risk of fraud is almost zero for the reasons I outlined above. But when I go online and buy something at Amazon, Amazon didn't get to see my credit card. And so that transaction is riskier. And so it's called card not present. And so all e-commerce is card not present today. It's riskier. Here's the thing. All identity today is card not present. We have no idea if these assertions that are being presented to us at the counter are real. So, so I'm just going to ask your blockchain so, question. Sorry. So, what we're using blockchain for is integrity proofs. We use it as a method to implement triple blind. So, the issuer of the data can demonstrate they wrote the data, and that's the same data that they they gave they gave to the user to present. The receiver can get the data, know that it has been altered, and then the consumer can have confidence that we're not oversharing data, and that's what blockchain is being used for.
7: So, uh, thank you for that point. I, I appreciate that. The second point I had is that when we are dealing, um, so you know, I mean, the one benefit that Estonia had, it's a unitary level of government. Mm-hmm. Here in Canada, and the region of, I'm from southwestern Ontario, I come from actually four levels of government because we have a regional government. Mm-hmm. So now you have the federal government that is a repository of certain information. You have the provincial government that's a repository of certain information. You now have a regional government that does the policing and, and other things, which is another repository of information. Then all my property tax and thing is the municipal government, which is another Level and, of government. And you use your IDs and passwords for all of them. <laughs> Which is fine. But the thing is, though, now sometimes different levels of government, when, when you look at tax, when you look at health, if I have to prove something, I, I may have to acquire information from different levels of government. How do you get the interoperability? Because it's not just one level of government. You can start off at the federal government level. But eventually, if this is going to work, then you should have access to all the information that's re- that's reposed or, or deposited or held through the different levels I, of government. I'm going to
1: a comment and then Renee's going to add something in it. So the, the truth is the way the world works today is every service makes its own rules. So every every organization you just listed, they all make their own rules. We want to ke- keep that property. We want to force everybody to do the same thing because they want to make their own business decisions. We want to keep that property. But what's important is is that um, you said it yourself, actually, is we when you talk to the driver's license folks in Canada, they will tell you that the driver's license is not an identity document. It just proves you learned how to drive. Yet you cannot sign up for any online service without... Your driver's license, so it's not an identity card. It just gets used that way, right? I have one minute left. So I would say that you know the important thing here is making sure that we can get a scheme that works for consumers across the economy. So I want to get running in before. So yeah. I'll just stop there.
4: I just quickly want to say that the expectation for this service is that all of these um, departments and 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 authoritative sources of of information participate in this ecosystem. So that when I as a user need to share information from these multiple sources, I can do that through the service um, and and with no expectation that the service is collecting any of that information to now create this new centralized honeypot that becomes another center of attack. The authority of the information is where the information stays.
7: So can I just, how many, 20 seconds, 30 seconds? 15 seconds, but okay. I'm being nice tonight. <laughs> okay, so, and, and I agree with you on that point. I think the one thing I like about the Estonian model is the fact that they have an X-road system where you have silos of information along the route. I don't know in terms of technology whether that's safe or not, but I would never suggest that information be held in one place where it could be attacked. But I think that's what Estonia did is they had this X-road where everything could fuse into that and they would have... And maybe sure, you can yeah. comment uh, Is that is that safe? same? Okay. Right. the the same? Okay.
8: So, Thank you. We'll continue with Mr. We'll go on with Mr. Gord now. Five minutes to you. Well, this afternoon, hello. A single uh, digital identifier seems to be one possible solution for the future. But I liked what Mr. Anthony said as a very conservative uh, position that you put forward for several reasons. We have infrastructure, digital service infrastructure, which exists already in Canada. Estonia started from scratch, as you said, and then they created a single digital identifier. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, can you? What we have to do, I think, is to perhaps uh, perhaps uh, re- set aside or perhaps... Uh, reform the infrastructure we have uh, to create a single digital identifier or do you think we can use the existing infrastructure to actually create uh, that uh, single digital identifier? Do you have an idea of the scale of the challenge of providing this service to all Canadians across the country? don't know which one would like to answer that question.
0: or at least to contributing to the answer to that question. The scale of, I, I don't have an opinion about whether it's a private sector or a public sector uh, function to create that single digital identifier. I do know that when I hear um, concepts that I'm going to use my bank or or, or perhaps some other uh, identifier, I, I, have, I have to understand that better. Um, I do tend to trust that our public institutions maybe have more information that's more trusted and might look at that. The scale, though, is immense. Um, I would start, in the federal government at least, looking at all of the different identifiers you have now, and picking places where you could integrate and create a single authentication system that would allow high fidelity identification for transactions that are happening within and and around the government services. And I would start there before I looked outside. Um, The scale is enormous, and uh, I can't I can't help but uh, uh, hear andre's uh, uh, comments about how the we, we have a good identifier physically um, and the problem only exists online i I, I would argue um, that our very weak uh, tower of identifiers aggregating into a passport or a driver's license document um, are not actually strong authentications. There's very little proof today that I am who I say i am I am, but there's very little proof of that.
1: So I just want to add to that by saying that um, it's not about having a single identifier. It's about having confidence about who's on the other side of the transaction. So I have today already in my real life, both online and in person, lots of identifiers. And what's good about that, it allows me to segment and compartmentalize my life so that I can only share this information with this organization and this much information over there. And a single identifier will allow somebody to see everywhere that I've gone across the internet. The service that we have with the government of Canada, the thing you originally asked for was a service that had a single identifier. You wanted an m bun service, a meaningless but unique number that I could use across government. And when we looked at this, we said, this is a terrible idea because you're going to create a surveillance network. You're going to be able to see everywhere. Honor went to the beer store, they went to the doctor, the beer store, the doctor, the tax. You're going to follow me everywhere. I don't want this thing. And we designed triple blind privacy to solve that problem. It's not about getting to a single identifier. In government, the service we build actually gives you a plurality of of identifiers. When I go to each government department, I have a unique identifier that I only use there. And that's a better scheme because my relationship is contextual. I don't have a global view of my data. I have a very contextualized, compartmentalized view of my life. And I want it to stay that way. I don't want a big honeypot somewhere. So giving people, the tools and the capabilities to do this is important. I just want to pick up on on Mr. Anthony's comments for a moment, though. The passport is not an authentication document. We use it for identity to prove that you are in the government's book of names. So let me just share something that's really important when you get to identity. When you're asking who somebody is, you're asking two questions that have to be answered at the same time. The first question is, does such a person named Andre Boyson exist? The government, without dispute, is the author of that record and has domain over that record the second question that has to be answered concurrently is is he andre Boyson? and if you can't answer those two questions at the same time you can't do a good job so awesome authentication that's really strong but you don't know who it is is not that helpful you've got to be able to bind it to who did it and if you can combine it with self-interest then the user will do the right thing when they lose access to the credential which means the crook gets shut down So there's an identity, is three components and they need to be kept separate. The first part is the identity question, who are you? The second question is authentication, are you the person who showed up the first time? And the third thing is authorization, is what can I do inside your service? That third domain is mostly what you've been talking about today. The first two questions are are what we're arguing, it should be both a public and private service across the economy. We need all of these organizations to participate.
2: (laughs) All right, thank you. I'm going to turn it over to Mr. Graham. Yeah, no, it was a good answer. That's why I've been so reasonable.
9: That's fair. Um, I don't have a lot of time, so I'll ask you to use a, I'll call it lossy compression on your answers. Um, in, in the digital world, is there privacy without security? There is privacy without security?
0: Well, it, it depends on how you think about that question because it, 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 it deals with access. Mm-hmm. Um, so a record can be kept private, which you can talk about being making it secure, but you don't, uh, it 's a complicated yeah. question I, ult- ultimately the every aspect of privacy is expressed as a security control of some type so um, I think academically the answer is yes, but practically no
3: I think okay. if you flip that around and say that you can have security with varying levels of privacy yeah. it 's more aligned to what we 're talking about here. The reason advertising revenue companies driven by advertising revenue is so popular is because it allows them to be better at the provision of services or sell you more things. The government should take a page from that book. I mean, with respect obviously to citizens' privacy, but to say the future of government is going to be more directed and precise provision of services so you can ha-, and that can be secured at the level of privacy that the citizen is willing to participate. You know, if we give citizens a trade-off to say we can do much more with government with the existing information we have if we can derive analysis from that like the private sector does. Are you in? And I think the overwhelming answer from Canadians is going to be yes, if they understand what we're talking about here.
9: Okay. Um, Mr. Anthony, when you started answering your first question from Ms. Portier, you had trouble hearing because the microphone was on, therefore your speaker was off, and it was causing a problem. And it ties to a point that I want to make about non-intuitive interfaces and the biggest problem we have in security being the user. And I think um, I checked, and it's not in the records, and perhaps it should be. Who is Kevin Mitnick? And could you talk a little bit about that?
0: (laughs) Uh, Do you want to talk about who is Kevin Mitnick? Uh, I think it's a really important point because he hacked
9: massive numbers of systems. He wasn't really using
0: a computer to do it. He was using um, social engineering to do it. In the industry, sometimes we don't like to talk about Kevin Mitnick being a hacker. Um, right. he was a social engineer at heart which meant he was working human and offline systems to get information and then replaying that into uh... into trust relationships with other people and, and to some extent other computer systems mm. so uh... he got famous he went to jail mm. uh... he's now making a career of ha- of getting famous and going to jail <laughs> um, so it, it, it when you talk about the personal infor- when we look at the entirety of accessing computer information systems and 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 stored data if you're attacking that, you're going naturally to use the least effort. Mm. And um, the least effort is almost always people. Mm. So it's not enough to just secure the technologies. You also have to help secure the people. That's fair. Another... Oh, yeah.
4: Sorry. I just want to add to that that uh, we have to get to a point where we, we make the data almost useless in that really it's important about the, vali- the validation that comes with the data. So, if there is an attack, if there is a social engineering attack or otherwise, where the data is collected by the attackers and somehow try to be invoked into the system, it's rejected because it's not coming from a validated source. And so, really, we want to well, we want to make our personal information on its own useless. Give it to the attackers. Fine, they can't do anything without it because they can't validate it properly.
1: So sure. and, and I, I just want to add to that. That's the card. That's the card present identity idea. Right. You can only have the only person who could have done this is somebody who had something that belonged to the real user, and the real user will turn it off when they lose it. That's where trust and integrity will come from.
9: Well, another another weakness that I see is um, when you're processing encrypted data, at some point in the process, you have to decrypt it to figure out what you're doing with it. Is there any way around that? Can we process data without decrypting it? I know the EFF has worked on it a little bit, but I don't know if, if there's been an answer come to that.
4: So, um, I, I think there's a couple of things there. It depends on who who is the we. So, in a network, mm-hmm. in the service where there's an identity network, the network never sees, never needs to see the protected information, mm-hmm. right? So, sure, it has to send it. It has to, uh, you know, temporarily hold it while until the consumer picks it up, the receiver of the information picks it up, um, but the network doesn't need to see the personal information. So, yes. You can uh, process data without having to decrypt it, um, so really the encryption happens at the provider the consumer the receiver of the information should decrypt it. Um, the other thing is about data minimization so really, we also need to get to a point where we're not sending the birth date um, to say how old I am or that i'm the age of majority I'm sending a validated yes, this person's over nineteen so so those two things together mm. can can really Add the security that we need for, from a data minimization point, and uh, reducing the exposure of personal information.
9: Okay, I want to say, that? Is that you're telling me? Five minutes. Time's up.
2: Yeah, is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> you're doing so good. I have at least five more minutes. Is that I good? know. I know you do. <laughs> but I have to give it to Mr. Kent.
6: <laughs> Always a hard reality. Uh, Mr. Boyson, coming back to your point, uh, the Nexus card which uses biometrics, uh, not at every occasion, but uh, there's a place, and and sometimes the Canadian passport, uh, using the iris or the, the fingerprint. Is that the sort of double perfect positive identification that you're talking about?
1: Yeah, so what I like about the Nexus card is it gave consumers choice. If you told Canadians they had to get a retina scan to get a passport, there'd be outrage. Yes. When you, when you give them the choice thing, if you want to get through the airport faster, you submit your, ret- your biometrics, you can get through faster. Lots of people made that choice. By providing choice, it was accepted. I would also say your own GC uh, login service, the partner login service, also gave choice. You did not compel Canadians to use a bank account to get to CRA if they didn't want to. They could still use a government-issued user and password. By giving choice, that gave, gave comfort. You're not compelling me, so I'll try it out and see what happens. And that choice element is a key component to getting adoption of schemes like this
6: but is the iris identification technology in the nexus card which has to be purchased is that would seem to be a huge mountain for the for the government for the finance minister and his budget to climb
1: yeah i would argue that that's not really a good thing for like online service delivery it's like it feels kind of heavy-handed if i'm trying to vote to do a retina scan it feels kind of heavy-handed and so i would argue that each of these things need to be used we need to look at the a spectrum of services and then the level of assurance, right? And so not all of these things are in the same kind of category. And so for low-level assurance services, we don't need as much trust. So getting to that higher level is, is not as important. But what's important also about the retina scan and the Nexus card is it's done in a controlled environment. I have to go to a controlled kiosk with people watching me so they can see if I'm tampering with the machine or, or mucking with the card. And so it's that controlled environment that gives them the confidence to do it that way. You couldn't do a retina scan from home, as an example, with any kind of confidence because it could be a replay attack. Yet, yet well,
3: yeah, maybe you can if you look at one of the more if we're trying to learn from the private sector and look at one of the more elegant authentication methods that exist today on a smartphone it's made biometrics and now face id just ubiquitous and you know you it is heavy-handed to do a scan of someone's face every time you want to unlock your phone but you know what now that's the reality and people don't seem to mind it because the technology is so good that they want access to it and it's easy for them so I think we need to take a page out of that book that there's ways in which authentication is being handled today where, you know, they're they're doing a biometric every time you want to open your phone. And it's, you know, not a new system. It's an existing system that's in place today.
1: Uh, just to clarify, on-device biometrics are a good idea. It's trying to register my biometrics everywhere is a bad idea is the point mm-hmm. I was trying to make. Uh, Uh,
6: Toronto um, hospitals, the the hospital networks, have been trying for more than a decade. The Ontario government's been encouraging them to have online exchange of medical information for all sorts of reasons, emergency room access and so forth. Have either of your companies worked with the hospital networks, with doctors' offices to try and... Come up with a safe system.
1: Yeah, we've got a pilot going on with UHN right now, and one of the challenges. And I've done actually a TEDx talk on healthcare and identity because that's actually as a country the biggest need for digital identity actually is in healthcare, and so we need to solve this problem because we can't continue to have healthcare consume the whole budget. So we are doing pilots now, and one of the critical elements in getting this right in healthcare is like a, a healthcare only bespoke solution won't work because. Most of the population uses the healthcare system very infrequently, which means they're going to forget the damn password. And then the balance of the population is very heavy users of the scheme, and they're always in there in person anyway. So we need a mechanism to access services online that will work for everyday Canadians. And so we saw how successful the government service was for CRA. We think that model can be extended to other public and private sector services.
6: Time.
2: Final round. Mr. Shani, have
7: <coughs> Today, if you could give them written I'd appreciate that the one question is we keep talking about Estonia but I know there's other countries that have begun the process if you could just give us a list of those countries or countries you would suggest we study and maybe some relevant reading material we could include that in our in our understanding second of all and this is something that fascinates me because coming from the private sector and owning a pharmacy my technology was always cutting edge whatever was the newest I had to I had to keep up now when you have you're going to have a nexus point eventually going forward where you're going to have private industry or the private sector is going to interact with the public sector in the exchange of information. How do we keep the technology relevant? Because the the private sector is always going to be ahead. The public sector uh, sort of comes behind. But if this is really going to work, you might get the policy directive right. You might get the understanding right. You can solve the issues with privacy. But eventually technology is going to be the key because one will always be out of step with the other. How do we solve that problem?
1: So I want to pick up on Matthew's uh, comment earlier is that you've got to go slow and then go fast when you can. So what's interesting, when you compare the internet to the payment card system again, the way we pay for stuff in 70 years has barely changed at all. It started with a paper card, then we went to a plastic card, and then we had two problems, transaction speed and fraud. So we moved to MagStripe. Then the crooks figured out how to MagStripe and then we moved to ChipCard. And since we've gone to ChipCard, in-person fraud has gone to zero, but we have this online problem, so now we're putting it in the phone. What's important is the way the users pay for stuff in 70 years across the globe has barely changed at all. Mm -hmm. On the internet, it's changing every single week. Mm -hmm. right? And users can't keep up. Go
9: ahead. Um, You're talking a moment ago about face identification for logging in. And uh, so it leads to the question I wanted to ask really I didn't get to, which is if your biometrics are compromised, what can you do about it? And, and the example of that is Angela Merkel's fingerprints were famously hacked by somebody who had a photograph of her. So, yeah, so I, I
3: refer back to my depository insurance comment to say if we're actually going to roll out biometric authentication for government services, there has to be that that buffer zone where citizens believe that if there is some compromise that there's a way to fix it. Now, how do you you know, get new biometrics. I don't have a good answer for that. Uh, Maybe Matt does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I, I will say that it's
0: become increasingly difficult uh, to fake. As the technology for sensors has improved, the ability to fake a a biometric has become increasingly difficult. So as we move away from uh, a thumbprint to a face print to, we're looking now at uh, vein pattern recognition on some some new phone systems, um we've had palm print technologies for a long time it is always perhaps possible to spoof those you know any problem can be solved with enough money and technology um, they can be spoofed but they can't perhaps be overtaken unless you don't register them yourself hmm. so the you know if if you have your phone and don't ever register anything except a four digit pin and then somebody comes along and puts their thumbprint in it's in there um, that's your that's on you not them hmm. um, but you can't you know the the ability to actively impersonate somebody with a biometric, unless you haven't that hasn't been registered to you in the first place, is getting to the level of practical impossibility. You know, tw- fifteen years ago, I could fake I could fake a print, take a fingerprint, uh, and replay it fairly easily. I can't do that anymore. That's fair.
4: Yeah, it really is about the way it's input into the system. Again, you know, there's I, I worked on biometric standards for about ten years actually, and um, it was interesting, there was always discussion about about the input into the system and, and taking a fingerprint and putting the fingerprint in. So there was always a discussion about liveness detection. So then really your input system should have a, a means to identify whether or not it's a live biometric. And then really liveness is... Is really about a biometric, and so it, it is increasingly complex as to how to figure out how uh, to accurately get um, the information in that isn't isn 't spoofed it 's not just a static fingerprint and so you know you see some of the face recognition uh, algorithms the input is um, there's actually a request for you to do different things smile, turn your head, look down look you know close your eyes mm-hmm. so there there is increasingly harder uh, ways to and actually get the, imp- to, the to information information that, input to amplify that,
0: I would just like to say that if if The level of access that you need requires you to go to those lengths. I guarantee you there are easier ways to get your data. Fair enough. Um,
1: I just want to add a quick, uh, sorry, I I don't want to take your time. I just want to say that the biometrics, don't think of the silver bullet thinking where you're going to solve it with biometrics. It's biometrics with what you have and what you know.
2: I, I have a deep feeling that our our my friend my colleague Mr. Graham would like to filibuster if he could because he's really <laughs> got a lot to say. And I would normally like to continue, but we do have an agreement on Thursdays when for people who are going to head out for flights and that that um, we we land after the, this round. So this was the round, uh, and I want to thank you very much for this. Has been a fascinating uh, discussion. Really excellent information. If you have things that you think we should be looking at, if you're checking our testimony of that, feel free to certainly write our committee because we will be pr- preparing a report. Mr. Sani? Uh,
7: just to, to all four of you, I know I mentioned uh, the one specific uh, issue about countries, but if there's any other information um, that either of you think that we should need, we'd be deeply grateful if you could pass on that information in a submission and, and give us the opportunity to maybe expand our own thinking on this topic.
1: Sure, some information for sure. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you.